Hello, and welcome to the Asia Matters podcast. My name is Bill Hayton, and I'm an associate fellow with the Asia Pacific program at the London-based think tank Chatham House. Back in 2014, I spent a year in Myanmar working with a state broadcaster at a time when the country was moving towards democracy. In the wake of the military coup in February, that feels like a very long time ago. Since then, well over 500 people have been killed by the army and the police, and the generals are showing no signs of backing down. Some protesters have been calling for the outside world to intervene, and a lot of hope has been placed on the ability of ASEAN, the 10-member Association of Southeast Asian Nations, to mediate an end to the crisis. In this edition of the podcast, we're going to talk about how likely that is. We're then going to broaden the discussion to the question of how ASEAN, this 53-year-old club of countries, is going to navigate an era in which large powers, the US and China, but also India and Japan, are competing for influence and power. We have two great guests to guide us. Bilahari Kausikan is an example of something that isn't supposed to exist, an outspoken Singaporean diplomat, formerly permanent secretary at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and now chair of the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. In a recent Facebook post, he denied being a cynic, merely an extreme skeptic. And Huang Tiha is also in Singapore, although she's originally from Vietnam. She is lead researcher for political security affairs at the ASEAN Study Center in the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies. Before that, she worked for the Vietnamese Foreign Ministry and for the ASEAN Secretariat in Jakarta. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So if we begin, maybe we'll begin with Belahari. What do you think, if anything, ASEAN can do about the present situation in Myanmar? Right now, there is nothing anybody, let alone ASEAN, can do. We can express our views, we can express our concerns, we can call for restraint, but that's about it. The situation is not ripe yet. There will come a time, don't ask me when, but it's nowhere imminent, when the Tatmadaw will need a ladder to climb down from. And that's when ASEAN has a role. Right, That will come when they are secure enough, when they feel confident that they have politically neutralized Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD completely, and then they will come to some kind of settlement. Right now, they are not in a mood to listen to anybody, not ASEAN, not China, not India, not the US, and certainly not Europe. So that's a very bleak uh, <laughs> outlook. So you're saying that the, the Tamado, the, the, the military leadership, they're simply uh, going to do what they want to do and nothing can stop them. Um, ha, do you share the same, I guess you might call it pessimistic view? Um, I will try to be more critical or bold in my assessment of uh, ASEAN's response thus far. The question is whether ASEAN has done enough or whether it has exhausted all of its uh, levers of influence. I think it could do more, but with the condition that the remaining nine ASEAN states must be able to speak with one voice and to get their act together. And if that can be achieved, then you know ASEAN nine can leverage the member card as both a carrot and a stick. You know, I think uh, legitimacy and recognition is also important to the military uh, government. But the thing is, ASEAN 9 cannot reach a coordinated response to this because they don't internalize the challenges that the Myanmar issue exert on ASEAN to the same extent. 
When we talk about ASEAN, we often confuse the members of ASEAN with the organization collectively. So, Bilahari, when we talk about what ASEAN can do, do you think there's a difference between what individual members, and I guess Indonesia here has been probably the most advanced in trying to talk to the regime, what a state could do individually versus what the other nine might be able to do collectively? I think um, there is a distinction. ASEAN is an interstate organization. So the Secretariat is not in any way like the say, European Commission. It can do no more than what its members allow it to do or authorize it to do. Now, Indonesia has taken the lead, and I'm very glad they have. But I think Indonesia well knows it has to bring, at some point, the others along. We are not there yet. Ha is correct in the sense that we could do more if we have a unified position, but we do not have a unified position for a very simple reason. Look, coups are not unknown in Thailand. Vietnam and Laos have communist, Leninist systems. Brunei is an absolute monarchy. We all have different views. The most critical countries have been Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, and on occasion, Philippines. But with the Philippines, you never know whether it's an individual speaking or the country speaking, because the foreign minister and the president sometimes says different things. But I think what all ASEAN agrees upon is that there is nothing to be gained from isolating the junta, appalling though its behavior may be. Ha talked a moment ago about having carrots and sticks. Frankly, there are no big carrots and no big sticks. We can provide a point of contact that the junta can choose to use when it is ready to. In the meantime, we can prepare for that. I think you should bear in mind that there is one important function of ASEAN that is seldom spoke about. ASEAN as an alibi. I don't think any of the major powers, given their experience in the last time, you know, from 1988 to around, what, 2011 or so, given their experience the last time, when everybody was equally powerless to change the behavior of the Tatmadaw, are particularly eager to take precipitate action. On the other hand, they all face internal pressures, uh, even China, because the demonstrations against the military have taken a distinctly anti-Chinese turn. And they are both, US and China, are acutely aware that the strategic context of this crisis in Myanmar is very different from the last time. Last time, US-China strategic rivalry was not a major concern. It is now the primary international issue. And so they will be very careful what they do so as not to give the other an advantage. And that's where ASEAN, even at this present stage, plays a certain role as an alibi. Because after all, if ASEAN is trying to do something, as Indonesia and the Brunei chair are trying to get an informal ASEAN foreign ministers meeting together as a preliminary to having a summit, then they need not take precipitate action because ASEAN is engaged. This is a very delicate game for ASEAN. We have to do enough to maintain our credibility, but not so much as to burn our bridges with the Tatmadaw so as to be able to serve as a ladder when the time comes for them to use a ladder to climb down on. Right, right. And Ha, do you think this is going to work? I mean, do you expect the other members of ASEAN to continue to treat Myanmar as a regular member, just one of the 10 like any other? Oh, I think this is a very valid question because 
throughout history, ASEAN has been quite persistent with its mantra of recognizing members on the basis of states, not governments. And I think in the early days after the coup, there was perhaps, and I may be wrong, this inclination by ASEAN and its member states to wait out and hope that developments on the ground may sort themselves out in a way that would most probably enable the military government to gradually consolidate their de facto control. I think the black swan here is the Myanmar's public uh, outrage, both on the ground and online, that have made it difficult for ASEAN and its member states to do business as usual with the military government. And I think internally now, ASEAN has hold in abeyance uh, the issue of legitimacy of the Myanmar military authority while trying to avoid disruptions to ASEAN's operations. Therefore, um, no objection has been raised to the participation of military-appointed representatives at ASEAN meeting, but ASEAN has been careful not to lend official recognition or legitimacy to the military government, especially uh, during a political diplomatic engagement or at higher level, like ministerial level. So I saw recently there was a, a meeting of finance ministers, I think, and central bank governors, and the Myanmar representative had taken part just as if they had been, you know, part of the democratically elected government that was assumed to be taking power. So you think this is going to continue? I think so. But ASEAN will try through procedural or semantic tactics to keep the operation but it tries not to be seen as giving recognition to the military, but it has to live with any de facto representative or representation uh, being present from Myanmar at the meeting. Okay, now this is sort of okay whilst ASEAN is having its own internal meetings, but in August we'll have the foreign ministers' meetings and we'll see the ASEAN regional forum with American and Russian and other regional diplomats invited. And then in November we'll have the Leaders' Summit, which becomes the the East Asian Summit, again, with leaders from other countries around the world. Do you think that's going to cause a crisis? You know, will the Americans or anybody else uh, decline to show up if the uh, Myanmar military are are sitting at the table? Bilahari, maybe you could begin with this. Do you think this is going to cause a crisis for the big set-piece summits uh, in in August and, and November? Okay, I will make a distinction between the meetings at the foreign minister level and summit meetings. At the foreign minister's level, I don't see any of ASEAN's 10 dialogue partners making a big fuss, except perhaps the EU and Canada. And these are the two most strategically irrelevant of ASEAN's dialogue partners. I think all the others, including the US, see the value of maintaining some engagement with the military while making their displeasure or their disapproval known. Secretary of State Blinken has told several of his ASEAN counterparts, that he is willing to meet with all 10 ASEAN foreign ministers. Now, the summit is another matter. I think the same lineup will probably hold in the summit, except there is a doubt about the US. Because I think the president coming and sitting down with a representative of the military authorities is a very different proposition from the Secretary of State sitting down with the representative of the military authorities. After all, foreign ministers, part of the foreign minister's job is to meet all kinds of queer birds. But the president is another matter. So I think we should take it one step at a time, but I don't think there will be a crisis. Crisis is a very strong word. I don't take it, by the way, for granted, even if there were no Myanmar crisis, 
that assuming there was a physical East Asia summit at the end of this year, that President Biden would necessarily attend. It's not a given, you know. He has his priorities are clearly domestic, and they are very urgent domestic priorities, both in the health area and in the economic recovery area. So I don't take it for granted yet that he would attend in any case. And and Ha, do you see it the same way? I think I agree. I think the world has changed a lot since the late 1990s when dialogue partners could just hijack ASEAN's external relations. I think the importance of Southeast Asia and ASEAN standing in the strategic calculus of the major powers has been elevated. I think the US and other Western countries are now more humbled and pragmatic in their approach as far as I can see so far. As Bilhari just mentioned, the standing proposal from the U.S. to have a ministerial engagement with ASEAN foreign ministers to discuss this issue. But a lot will depend on the situation on the ground. I think if the political crisis in Myanmar continues to escalate with more casualties, I think it may reach a point where it will no longer be politically tenable for these Western countries to conduct business as usual with ASEAN especially at the ministerial or summit-level engagement. Bilahari, I was going to ask, I mean, Ha used the word humble there, referring to some of the, the outside powers. Do you think that's because of the experience of engagement with Myanmar in the past, or do you think this is because China is playing a bigger role now and we're in this game of realpolitik where countries realise if they don't engage with the region, they're going to lose ground to China? I think there are two factors. First factor is that in the previous period when we had to deal with a military regime, I'm talking not from 1962, from 1988 onwards, there was a general feeling in the West that Myanmar was strategically irrelevant and therefore it was a good place to posture, you know, and pander to NGOs and things like that. Much of Western policy then, and I include the US, Canada, EU, and not too much Australia, but certainly the US, Canada, and the EU, their policies were intended to make themselves look good and feel good about themselves rather than do any good. Now, there has been a sobering experience. Now, the strategic importance of Southeast Asia is evident to everybody, and in particular, the US and China on its part is going to be very careful about what they do about the situation in Myanmar so as not to give the other a strategic advantage. I wouldn't call it humble, although I don't really quarrel with that word, I would call it a more realistic and pragmatic attitude. And how would you agree? Yes, I would like to add on that maybe it is also attributed to China's re-emergence, as you mentioned, but also the West's uh, economic and ideological primacy and their post-Cold War liberal democratic triumphalism. I think it, that era is over now. And do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's not inherently good or bad because uh, it is the reality. Democracy is not in a linear progression, as you always assume. And it is a good thing in the sense that, you know, the West has come to be more realistic, as Bilahari mentioned, and more calibrated in their approach in dealing with this part of the world that has to balance between both uh, interests and values. And Bilahari, I mean, it seemed that, you know, we had quarter of a century after 1990 when everything seemed to be going in the 
liberalizing direction and suddenly everything's come to a grinding halt. Do you see that as a bad thing or are there opportunities there? First of all, it was a delusion in the first place, even in the 1990s. It was a delusion by a few Western countries not shared in this part of the world. Liberalization, democracy, these are protean terms. They mean very different things and there's not one simple definition of it. What has happened now is I think people have better appreciation, at least policymakers, of nuance, of complexity, and the world is not in a teleological mode of development. It's not up and up and on and on towards the greater light of democracy, liberalization, whatever you may think. It's a complex situation. We all live in a complex world. There is a better appreciation of that, and I think that's all to the good. And I think this is going to be a major universal change for many people in the West who've kind of lived with that teleological idea that we're on a kind of progress towards enlightenment, liberalization and freedom. I I think it's going to cause major mental adjustments to be made among Western, not just governments, but publics as well. Well, growing up is painful, you know. (laughs) Do you think there's a a sense in which maybe Southeast Asian governments are ahead of Western, European, North American governments in, in this sense? First, because even a liberal democracy like Japan never bought into that kind of teleological worldview. They know very well the reason they are a liberal democracy is because they lost a war. So we never had the same right. idea. We, ne- we always knew that the world is a more complex place. We didn't believe in you know, a teleological notion of political development. And we always knew that history, culture matters. And you can't expect every country to converge to some still perfect point of nirvana. You know? mm-hmm. And I suppose in some ways ASEAN represents, you know, there are 10 different countries, 10 different ways of doing politics. Yeah, you know, look at ASEAN's diversity. And that's one of the reasons we have different positions, different views on what's happening in Myanmar. And Ha, would you think that, you know, what Bilahari is saying applies to the countries that you know, to Vietnam and to your experience with the representatives in the ASEAN Secretariat? Vietnam and Laos are, of course, uh, always one ruling party, a communist party even. But between Thailand and Malaysia and Indonesia, even the Philippines, we could see that democratization in these countries is not always like a predetermined uh, linear development. And, you know, there is democratic backsliding across the region, even in the so-called, you know, democratic countries. Within ASEAN, I think Vietnam is an interesting case because it used to be very conservative when it comes to sovereignty, state control and non-intervention. But now I think it can be more relaxed, more confident. But that doesn't mean that, you know, they can go very far in having such a kind of more forward-leaning approach as Indonesia and Singapore have towards uh, the Myanmar issue. Right, right. How much do you think this is being determined, if you like, by this uh, regional competition? I mean, there are clearly opportunities and risks involved in the way the US and China in particular, but also other powers are getting involved or trying to play a game in, in Southeast Asia. I think, Bilahari, you've, you've said in the past that the ideal is not being forced to choose and that there are opportunities here. Do you still have that view? Yes, I do. But let me uh, expand on it a little bit, if I may. Now, look, there are two extreme situations which are not good for small countries as 
even the largest of Southeast Asian countries is by comparison to the US and China. One extreme is, of course, extreme conflict, war. There is no room to maneuver if they are at war for us. The other extreme is if there's perfect agreement, some kind of condominium within them. There will also be no room to maneuver. So some level of competition is not a bad thing. Add to that the complexity of the natural multipolarity of a strategic crossroads. There's always going to be more than one or two powers engaged in Southeast Asia. Japanese interests are aligned with but not identical to American interests. Ditto for Australia, ditto for, ditto for India, South Korea, and several European countries that have become more active in Southeast Asia. And this natural multipolarity, which ASEAN, some of ASEAN's institutions or forums are intended to enhance, creates opportunity to exercise agency, to maneuver for the members of ASEAN for the smaller countries. Now, of course, whether we have the wit to recognize the opportunity and the courage to seize them is another matter, but you know, in principle, it exists. So we, we can survive this. It's not a unique situation. ASEAN or the countries of ASEAN have lived among major power conflict for centuries. And I mean, at times it's been obviously, you know, thinking back to, to the 70s, of course, major power competition was a disaster for some countries in, in, in Southeast Asia. Are you more optimistic now? No, I'm not saying they always handled it well, but for the others, it was a disaster for the Indo-Chinese countries. It was not a disaster for the original five or six members of ASEAN. We managed quite well, thank right. you very much. And, and Ha, do you share Bilahari's optimism about this period of competition? I think we have to live with the reality, as Bilahari said, that you know, Southeast Asia is at the intersection of the interests of the major powers. And this is a situation that we have lived with for decades, for centuries, actually. And during the Cold War and the hot war in Indochina, U.S. military presence and operations in the region were actually beneficial for the political survival, economic takeoff and security assurance of the ASEAN members then. So I think the good or bad impact of the U.S.-China rivalry would depend a lot on how adept uh, ASEAN countries will leverage this competitive dynamic to further their needs and interests. Take the vaccine diplomacy, for example. A few days ago, I checked, you know, there is this thing, global health tracking of worldwide vaccination donation. And the tracking shows that countries in East and South Asia received more than 50% of the pledged donations although they have only 8% of the confirmed cases. And you, you can see that Southeast Asia is a key front of China's vaccine diplomacy. And the recently launched Quad Vaccine Partnership also has a focus on Southeast Asia. So it is not inherently bad or good. But having said that, I think given the diversity within the region, the return of the great power competition has really deepened the state of disunity and incoherence among ASEAN member states and are driving them further away from ASEAN. Core. Right. This question of disunity and, and dysfunction. Um, and I think, <laughs> Bilahari, recently you said I may be possibly mischievous that it might be better for ASEAN if it lost at least one difficult member. I don't know if you were being serious then or, or whether you, that was just a, a symptom of your frustration with the way that some bits of ASEAN are not working? Look, um, first of all, the idea of ASEAN unity has always been a very flexible one. 
ASEAN is not and has never been a happy band of brothers. Indeed, if we were a happy band of brothers, there would be no need for ASEAN or anything like it. Its fundamental purpose is to manage these differences. So we start from that premise. Now, when I said that I think countries like Cambodia and Laos to some degree will have to fundamentally rethink their relationship with China, it was in relation to a particular issue, the Mekong. It's now quite clear that Chinese dams and Laotian dams and actually Cambodian dams are changing water flows in ways that could be potentially environmentally disastrous and indeed almost existential for countries that are still largely dependent on subsistence agriculture. Now, if they can't look at their own interests in that kind of situation, then there is really no hope for them. And I was shooting, sending a shot across the bow to warn them that you know people's patience is not infinite. Actually, if you look at ASEAN statements since 1915 on the South China Sea, the format of them has changed quite significantly. We don't pretend to have a complete unity. We say some ministers or some view, and some ministers for another view, and things like that. So we have already made the concept of unity more elastic, and this should be something that countries like Laos and Cambodia and now Myanmar should take note of. And Ha, do you, do you think the same thing? How much do you value diversity of opinions, and how much do you would you like to see ASEAN be a, a way that you shape a collective Southeast Asian view on an issue? ASEAN can only go as far as its member states would allow it to go. So on many issues where ASEAN cannot agree or cannot go too far or cannot have a robust or strong voice or action, then, you know, we have to look back to ASEAN member states' positions. It is very difficult for us to blame on ASEAN for everything. You know, we often ask what ASEAN has done to us without internalizing the fact that the free riding approach of ASEAN member states has inherently constrained ASEAN's ability to deliver better. I would just add to that, Bill, that ASEAN has never pretended to have a common position on every issue. Very often, we just agree to disagree. It's, it's the South China Sea, I guess, is the, is the preeminent example. What, what other ones would you think of? Well, the South China Sea, we actually have put together a minimal level of consensus based on the six principles that the former foreign minister of Indonesia came up with after that fiasco in Phnom Penh in 2012. And that is more or less held, you know. The Cambodians have not behaved with such, you know, foolish intransigence, not quite the same level of foolish intransigence since then. It's not a consensus that is very strong. It's a consensus that is rather weak and it's not one that makes, especially the claimant states, I think, very happy, but it is a sort of consensus. Another issue where we don't pretend to have a consensus is some of the Middle East issues. Palestine and uh, relations with Israel are sensitive issues to, say, Brunei, Malaysia, and slightly less so, Indonesia. On the other hand, Singapore has excellent relations with Israel and has had for a long time. Vietnam has developing good relations with Israel, so has Thailand and uh, some other of the ASEAN countries. So there are many issues where we don't pretend to have a common position and never have, actually. What about internal issues? I mean, for example, migration between countries. I guess that's something that kind of continues to divide ASEAN states at a national level. Well, definitely, because there's a clear division between sending states and receiving states. The interests are not aligned. 
and I don't see how they can be aligned. So we have to manage the difference. And that's one of the functions of ASEAN, to manage the difference. There are differences in migration issues, worker issues, but they are contained within the ASEAN framework. They're not resolved by any means, by the way, but they don't escalate into conflicts. There are differences of view, differences of policy, differences of opinion. I mean, one thing I've said to people in the past is ASEAN is sort of behaves like a fire blanket. It doesn't necessarily put out the fires, but it kind of prevents the fires that might exist between countries from getting in any worse. I mean, whether it be a boundary dispute or an argument over, over migration. Would you agree? What are the benefits, do you think, that the ASEAN membership gives to the 10 countries? Well, ASEAN member states are just so different in terms of size, power, and also strategic outlooks. So ASEAN helps to bridge uh, all these um, symmetries and differences. But ASEAN is not intended to resolve conflicts or differences, but at least it provides the certain normative framework as well as the understanding that, you know, there must be no war or armed conflict between the family members, regardless of of, of our disagreements or disputes. And Bilahari, what would you say? What, What value does ASEAN give to its members? I use a different metaphor than the fire blanket, but that's its essential function, to manage differences that cannot be resolved, but need to be managed. You know, you, you and I, Ha is too young, are old enough to remember what Southeast Asia was like pre-1967. If you remember, there were huge and serious tensions, conflicts indeed, between Indonesia, Malaysia and Singapore, between Malaysia and Indonesia, between Malaysia and the Philippines, any number of conflicts. That there has been no war between any of us uh, is something of a miracle and can be attributed to ASEAN's role in managing these differences. Going forward, do you think ASEAN has has more to offer? Do you think it's a question of deeper integration, finding a an ASEAN view on things, or do you think that this is what we should just expect from going forward? Well, I think we shouldn't pretend to have a common view on every political security issue. That's one of the fundamental mistakes that the EU made to pretend to have a common foreign security policy, which everybody, including some EU members, think is a joke. Right? We don't pretend that way. But where we must go forward is in deeper and faster economic integration. We have set the goals, the correct goals, but we have not moved quickly enough. And if we don't move quickly enough, we will not maximize the potential benefits of what is collectively potentially the fifth largest economy in the world. Right. So maybe just to conclude then, do you think going forward from you know in, in this era of renewed power competition that ASEAN is likely to fracture as different governments get pulled in in different directions or do you think it will have the effect of pulling ASEAN together i think it continues to be a struggle going forward and it's critical for ASEAN countries to continue to leverage ASEAN platforms to engage all the major powers and keep the region open and inclusive, as Bilhari said, to maintain the status of uh, multipolarity. For us, the more the merrier, the more choices for small states in the region to make and more space for us to maneuver. Thank you. And Bilhari? Well, you know, look, ASEAN diplomacy, whether conducted nationally or collectively, is naturally promiscuous and has never been monogamous. 
right? Look at the diversity of our dialogue partners. Russia and China on one pole, Canada and the EU on the other. I don't think any ASEAN country, even those that are very closely aligned to China, like Laos and Cambodia, and certainly not others, have ever thought it necessary to neatly line up their interests across all domains with one major power or another. That's what I mean by our diplomacy being promiscuous. We may align ourselves on one issue with country or power A. On another issue, we may balance with country power B or power C or power D on different, in different issues. That's how countries have learned to survive in the midst of great power rivalry, which is the situation of Southeast Asia. As long as we keep that in mind, ASEAN will do fine. Thank you very much. I think that's a great place from which to end. Thank you to both of my guests, Bilahari Kausikan and Huang Ti Ha. You've been listening to an edition of the Asia Matters podcast. This episode was brought to you in conjunction with the Asia Pacific program at Chatham House. Many thanks to Rebecca Bailey, who produced it. Please do subscribe to the podcast. You can find it on all the major podcast platforms, or you can visit asiamatterspod.com, our website. Thank you for listening, and join us next time.